Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I finished that 500-page small print book that I was reading from my class. Um, last night, we had a missionary guest at the youth group who stayed overnight with us, and he and I took this class together back in Pennsylvania. And uh, he was smart enough to check the number of pages. There were two books. You could choose one book or the other for the after-class read, and he was smart enough to look at the page list first. And I was not. So I read this great big thick book, which means I read about 2,200 pages for that class. And I'm about a third of the way through the homework assignment. And the teacher said, we've got about six weeks to do that. And this week is number six. So I don't want to be that guy who turns his homework in late for his first class in the doctoral program. Kind of a slacker is that. I don't really want to get a lower grade just... I really don't want to get a lower grade just for turning my work in late. I've enjoyed the process of learning. I would like the teacher's evaluation of my work, translate that my grade, to demonstrate that I have learned something. Did you know that your Christian life is going to be evaluated by Christ someday? Now, we're not going to ever stand before God as to whether or not we make it into heaven. You know, a lot of times we, we use this imagery of uh, standing at the pearly gates and God says, why should I let you in? That's not going to happen. You're either going to make it through the gates or you're not. But once you make it through, God says he's going to evaluate our work. And we read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 9. <clears throat> For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now... If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. This is one of those passages of Scripture that sometimes we wish God had left out of the Bible, maybe had changed the way things are going to work. But it, it's a very challenging thought to realize that a mature Christian will live to please Christ because of the evaluation that Christ will conduct and the reward he will give for how we have lived for Him in our time here as a Christian. The first thing that we need to understand today is this. Christ has the right to evaluate your life. Look at verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. He's talking about ownership. 
Now, in the big context of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is addressing an issue. And the issue is, I would call it spiritual arrogance. The people in the church divided up into groups. I like this teacher, I like this teacher, I like this teacher. And, and because of that, they were being mean and hateful to each other. And, and the Apostle Paul is trying to say, now look, Apollos, who was your pastor for a while, and I, we're just working together. I laid the foundation. I came in and built something. In other words, I shared the gospel. People got saved. Pastor Apollos came along and he taught you in the Christian faith. And then there were others in that process as well. But he says a very important thing here. He says, you need to realize something, folks. You belong to God. Paul, Paul is inferring this. You don't belong to me, and you don't belong to Apollos, and you don't belong to yourself. That's probably the hardest thought for us American Christians to get a hold of. We do not belong to ourselves. Later in this book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul explains the reason why Christ has the right to place expectations on our life. And it comes from chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. It's a gift from God, and you are not your own. You do not own yourself. You are not self-determinative in your life. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God. Our society went through a phase where people were owned. We call it slavery. And we came into existence as a nation in part because people felt a certain degree of, of control, of, of not quite slavery, but a, a, an over-imposing of control by the king of England. And they said, we want to be free. We want to be free to worship as we please. We don't want taxation without representation. We're, we want to chart our own course. And so our country was formed. And when somebody comes along and says, you do not own your life, we go, wait a minute. I have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And God says, no, you don't. He says, you were bought with a price. Well, when were we bought? And what were we bought out of? Look at this passage here. If we have been united in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. These two verses come out of a passage that's talking about salvation. And it essentially says that when we put our faith in Christ, spiritually we are united with Christ in his death on the cross with his burial and his resurrection. And it says, if we have been united in the likeness of his death, we are also going to be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man, our sinful man, was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be the slaves of sin. The imagery that God uses in this, in this doctrine about salvation is the image of a slave market. In the day that the Bible was written, slaves were common. There were probably more slaves than free people. And God says, we used to be in the slave market of sin. We were controlled in sin. And when we put our faith in Christ, we were nailed to the cross. Our sin nature was killed. We were buried with Christ, raised to a newness of life. Now we're not a slave to sin anymore. We've been freed from that. 
But we weren't freed to be on our own. Peter writes this, If you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves or live your life throughout the time of your stay here in fear, in other words, respecting God, why? Knowing that you were not redeemed. That's again... Here you are as a slave, and God came along and paid the price, so you're no longer a slave. You were redeemed, not with a corruptible thing like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In our unsaved condition, we are trapped in the slave market of sin, Jesus died on the cross and the, the visual picture God is bringing is that God took the, the currency of blood payment and paid for your sin and you are set free out of slavery. We have been redeemed. We have been bought out. Paul puts it this way in Colossians, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints He has delivered us from the power of darkness and put us into a place where we can do anything we want. Is that what it says? He has taken us out of the slave market of darkness and placed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption. There's that word again, through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. The blood paid the price so that we could be released out of slavery. The, the, the Israelites in, in Egypt and coming out are a picture of this. Here they are in slavery. They can't free themselves. And so God says, I tell you what, you, you make a sacrifice of an animal and you put blood on the doorpost and the the frame of your door, and you be in your house under that blood. And I'm going to send a death angel through Egypt, and everybody who is covered by the blood will be protected. And everybody who is not, the firstborn, will die. And everybody who was protected by the blood came out of slavery into God's freedom, and, but God's freedom is freedom to serve Him. Before we put our faith in Christ, we were controlled by sin and destined for hell. When we believe in Christ, our sin is forgiven. We are free from sin, but not to just do what we want. We are free now to serve God and free to honor Him and end up in heaven for all of eternity. As we come back to 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, we read this phrase again, you are God's field. You are God's building. He's going to talk about building and building materials. And so the question we have to ask today is this, whose building am I building on? Am I building on God's building? Or am I saying, God, would you please come and do what I want you to do? Am I God's building? Does He own me? This is the basic decision of discipleship. Who decides where I pick the issue in your life? Go to college. 
Who decides where I work? Who decides how I use my time and money? Who decides how I marry? Who decides what the priorities of my parenting are? I mean, you can find wisdom for all of this in the world. Who decides what kind of job I'm going to get? Well, of course you make as much money as you possibly can. What else would be more important than that? Well, maybe God has a different priority for you. And so you get up in the morning and say, God, what what do you want me to do? We are God's field. We are God's building. Are you working in God's field or are you seeking to get Him to work in yours? God says we are His field. We are His building. And so we should be building on that foundation in His way because someday He's going to inspect the work that we've done. Look with me at verse 10 where we realize that Christ will only evaluate believers. This passage is given to believers. If you have never believed in Christ as your Savior, the judgment that's spoken of here, the evaluation, will not be for you. No other, uh, verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given me, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. Verse 10, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul is using the concept of a building to illustrate the Christian life. And he says the Christian life starts with Christ. The foundation, the beginning point is Christ. You believe in Him, you're saved, and that starts your Christian life. Your sin is forgiven, the Christ life is implanted. Now you have the ability to grow, to build on that foundation. The truth is summarized here about how people get saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How shall they call on him of whom they have not believed? How shall they believe and whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? When Paul says he laid the foundation, he's not saying that he somehow made them into Christians. He's saying that he preached the truth and they got saved and that foundation was laid in their life. Paul preached Christ. They were able to choose and believe. And so the simple But devastatingly important truth is this. You can't show up in heaven with some other foundation and expect Christ to include you in His evaluation. You know, the most common other foundation in our American society is the foundation of good works. People expect to show up at the gate of heaven and have God evaluate their life. And He'll look and say, well... You know, uh, yeah, you did, yeah, well, you did some bad things there, but you know, you, on balance, you did good. You know what other world religion thinks that same way? The Muslims. They do. I heard a testimony of a fellow who said, "I went to bed every night thinking, did I do enough good to outweigh the bad today?" And when he finally came to Christ, he went, "Wow, this is the greatest, because Christ paid for my bad." And, and, and so I, I can't possibly earn God's favor. And the Apostle Paul is saying that right here. No other foundation can be laid. That's what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. He says there's going to be people who show up in heaven and go, Lord, Lord. Can you, can you imagine people in the crowd going, hey, here I am. I, I'm here. I'm here. The ones who will make it are the ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? 
cast out demons in your name and done many wonderful wonders in your name, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now, uh, there's a scary thing here, and there's something to, to get very firmly to grasp very clearly. The scary thing is this. You can do religious things, things that you think will earn God's favor, legitimate things, you know, uh, giving money to the church or painting the wall or, or, or feeding a child in Africa, all good things, and show up in heaven thinking, hey, Lord, I'm your guy. And he'll say, I don't know you. Because the way that we know God, the way that we, according to this, practice the will of the Father in heaven is by doing what he told us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. This is the will of God, that you believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. You cannot do the will of God until you have believed in Christ. Once you have believed in Christ, now we go on to realize that God wants us to serve Him as believers. And so we understand that Christ will evaluate, evaluate our growth and service. And Paul compares Christian growth and service to the constructing of a building. In a physical building, the foundation is laid, and then you, you put a wall up and a wall up, and you put a roof on, and he's using that imagery. You've believed in Christ. Now you've got some work to do. And that work is going to be characterized, look at verse 12. The work, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the quality of your work will become clear, verse 13, because it will be tested by fire. Um. Essentially, when he says gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, he's just making a contrast. Things of permanent value, things without permanent value. And even better, things with eternal value, things without eternal value. Jesus uh, talks about this. Other parts of the Bible talk about it. And we could look at a lot of detailed things, but I've tried to summarize this down into three areas that I believe God will examine. And the first would be the area of behavior or, or your actions, the way you act day by day. Second um, Timothy says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity or sin. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the dishonor, from the sin, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, set apart, special, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. You, this is as simple as saying your behavior is either sinful or righteous. And God knows the difference between the two. And he says if you really know Christ and are preparing to see him, then you are working day by day to say no to sin, no to sin, no to sin, yes to righteousness, yes to righteousness. God is going to inspect our behavior 
The simple question would be, are you becoming more like Christ every day? That's simple, but boy, that's a tall order. You know, uh, one of the faults of some of our strong Bible-believing forefathers was to kind of create a list of things that you needed to be doing to be a good Christian. And most of the things on that list were not particularly bad, wouldn't, wouldn't have hurt you to do them. But you know what the f- problem is when you make a list? It always comes short of this standard. Are you like Christ? That really is the standard. Do you live like Christ? Is your behavior like Christ? Are your relationships like Christ? That's the behavior standard for us. And so as we think about what will it be like to be evaluated by God, one of the standards is behavior. Before I started this class that I'm taking right now, I got a two or a three page paper, you know, called a syllabus that says, you will read these books, you will write these papers, um, and here is the grading standard. The books are worth this much, the papers are worth this much, the assignment is worth this much. It's right there. Here is the standard, it's right clear and plain. And if I choose to disobey, then my grade will suffer. That's the same thing that we're being taught here in 1 Corinthians 3. This is the standard. This is the syllabus of the Christian life. And if we choose to disobey, when we stand before Christ someday, our grade will suffer. The next broad area that I think God will examine is the area of motive. And Jesus instructs us on this when he says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Can't be much more plain than that. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. I don't know if, I don't know, I can't imagine that this was literally true. But I I think Jesus was using some hyperbole to say that somehow when the legalistic Pharisees who wanted to look really good, somehow when they came to do a charitable deed, you know, maybe they were going to give some money to the poor beggar. Somehow in the way they do that, did that, everybody around them went, oh, hey, look at Mr. So-and-so giving money to the beggar. Did they really sound a trumpet? I, you know, I find that hard to believe. Uh, <laughs> but maybe there's more ways than one to sound your trumpet. <coughs> and people turn and you go, see what I just did? Something like that appears to be what they did. And when you pray... Don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. We, we talked through this a few months ago, but the idea is this. There were several times a day when the really re- religious people prayed, the Jewish people. Legitimately, it was kind of their, their habit to pray. Well, where the question would be, where are you going to be when it's prayer time? You could have arranged your schedule so that you were at home behind the door. 
Or you could have arranged your schedule so that at, oh, it's 12 o'clock, time to pray. I just happened to be in the center of town, and now I will bow down and pray, and everybody will see me pray. It appears that they did something like that. But here's the, here's the, the net effect. They did it to be seen, and that's the reward they get. They don't get any reward from God. And so what's, what's the word that applies to that? It's the word motive. So the question is, why do you do what you do? Again, what is scary here is it's possible to do religious activities in such a way that God is not honored. When the goal of an activity is to somehow exalt yourself, you're building your life with wood, hay, and stubble, things that will not survive God's evaluation. The contrast is drawn here. When you pray... Go into your room, and when you shut your door, pray to your Father who's, who's in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Again, that's another reference to that, that day of reward in heaven when, when God is going to give the evaluation. And, and I think those people who really were in the habit of just, just closing themselves off with God and praying, I think they're going to be surprised when Christ says, Hey, I saw all of your sincere prayers, and here's a recognition for that. I think they'll go, well, what? You know, because those people aren't praying to get a reward. They're just praying to God. Does this mean we can't offer a public prayer? No. It simply means that when you pray, wherever you pray, however you pray, it should be you and God in your mind. Does it mean that we can't say thank you to all the workers who worked hard on the Awana Grand Prix? Because if we say thank you to them in church, they won't get a reward in heaven? No. What it means is, when you work on the Grand Prix, you should be doing it for the Lord. Because He will recognize that service. Does this mean you can't share a testimony with how God worked to accomplish something through you? That you can't be thankful and say, Amen. Man, I, I've been working on this and that, and the Lord came through, and this and that happened. Is that wrong to share that? No. It means that you need to be really praising God when you share it, not fishing for a compliment. Behavior, motive, and then I think the third broad area is what I would call priority. Jesus set the bar of commitment really high when he said this or this, this, this episode from his ministry. Now it happened as they, that's Jesus and the other disciples, as they journeyed on the road, someone in the crowd came up and said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Haven't you seen those kind of folks? Man, I'm just, I'm all in. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, we don't actually hear the response here. But then he said to somebody else, follow me. But that man said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. Now that doesn't mean he was dead waiting to go in the ground. That means let me go stay with my father till he's dead and I bury him. Then I'll come follow you. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their own. But you, you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another said, Lord, I will follow you. But first, let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. 
Now, I understand some people have gotten into some, some crazy, excessive uh, actions and attitudes based on taking this a little too literally. Jesus is saying, he's, he's asking really hard questions to say, am I your priority? Do you know how to know what your what's on the top of your priority list? It's not to see what's written there. But it's to look at the end of the day at the thing that constantly doesn't get done. In other words, if you know, I don't know how many of you are in the habit of making a list. Yeah, I gotta go to the grocery store and I gotta I gotta you know, do this. They got to do this, 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 this. And at the end of the day, some of those things will be done. Maybe number one will be done. But there's always something that gets cut, something that gets cut, something that gets cut. In your life, is it your giving to the church that gets cut? Is it your time in serving God that gets cut? Is it your sacrifice to help somebody else that gets cut? Where is the priority of Christ and His work on your priority list? How does living for Christ and serving Christ enter your priority decisions about money and time and all of the stuff of life? Those are the things that God is going to evaluate. Get it back up here, right there. Behavior, motive, and priority. And so what's that, what's that going to be like? Well, according to this text, it says Christ is going to sort our works. In other words, there's going to be a, a, a separating of the one from the other. He says there's going to be some stuff that's going to go over here, and there's going to be some stuff that goes over here. There's going to be some wood, hay, and stubble, and there is going to be some gold, silver, precious stones. In fact, what he actually says is this stuff is going to go whoosh and disappear because of, look at it there, it will become clear whether your work is gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, verse 13, it will become clear because it will be revealed by fire. Now, if you haven't been reading the Bible a long time, sometimes when you see the word fire, you always think of hell, and that's not what he's talking about. Because hell is not in the picture here. We're Christians. We're being evaluated by God as for our works. It's not about are we going to go to heaven or hell. It's about what were the quality of our works. And unfortunately, God doesn't spell out in real good detail to the detail we'd like <laughs> what this fire is. Most Bible students would identify this fire as God's righteousness. That somehow God is going to gaze at our works and the stuff that is godly can withstand that gaze and the stuff that isn't godly is consumed by the gaze of His righteousness. And I would tend to be one of those who agrees with that. Look at this reference that's parallel to this passage in 2 Corinthians. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
Now again, this is an evaluation of Christians, not a judgment as to do you make it into heaven. These people have all made it into heaven, and God is looking at our life saying, what did you do that had a lasting, eternal quality, and what did you do that is going to be consumed by my righteous gaze? I think Robert Gromacki said it best in his commentary. The fire is designed neither to punish the person nor to refine or make better the believer or his work, but simply to unmask the essence of his Christian effort, to show it like it really is. It will test the work to determine its quality, not its quantity. The possibility exists, according to this passage, of coming out of that examination with nothing of eternal value except salvation. Look at verse 14. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. Yet so as through fire. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's better than nothing. At least I'll make it to heaven. There's one guy in all of time who has a right to that thinking, and that's the thief on the cross. He's hanging on the cross, and he makes a a confession of Christ, and Christ says, today you will be with me in paradise. That guy had less than one day to live for Christ. So his works for Christ are going to be small But would you think of, would you try to let go, let your sanctified imagination imagine a scene in heaven when Christ is on the throne? And remember, when you get there, the condition of your mind will be now sin free. And, and you will have been translated out of this world, either out of your grave or off of this world. And, and 1 John 3 says, when we see him, we'll be, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And so we will be walking into heaven with a, a complete, perfect mind, with no taint of sin on us. And we will see everything the way that God sees And with that kind of knowledge and with that kind of an awareness, we will come into this time of judgment. And do you think with that kind of mind, we will stand there and go, well, I made it better than nothing. Really? You think you'd have that kind of attitude? Because if I understand the passage right, God is going to evaluate our lives and there will be a burning of the waste. Maybe some people will come thinking, well, I did a lot of things for the Lord and Christ will go whoosh and we will look. What? And with that perfect mind and with that perfect heart, I doubt we're going to walk away and go, hey, I made it. That's all that matters. You get that? Yeah, this is a heavy message, isn't it? It's heavy for me too. 
The good news is, and I pray to God that there's more gold, silver, and precious stone in my life than wood, hay, and stubble. The good news is, verse 14 and 15 says, it's not just going to be an exam and a puffing away of the wood, hay, and stubble, but it will be a reward for the gold, silver, precious stone. And so I know it's possible that I have some gold, silver, precious stone. I know that it's God's intention, it's God's desire. And so I know that if I live for Him, I can do that. And I can, I can come to this time knowing I did not live a perfect life, but I can come saying, oh, thank God, I did, I did have some things that were worthy of recognition. One of the ways that God talks about those rewards is crowns. And I'm indebted to, uh, of all the unlikely people, Dewey Bertolini for his commentary on 1 Corinthians, whom, somebody that my wife and I know. And he, he uh, oh, excuse me, not Dewey Bertolini, he, he made a different comment. Yes, Dewey Bertolini made the comparison of the judgment day to a day of graduation. And I thought that was very well put. And he said, you know, when you, when you come to a time of graduation, whether it's high school or college or graduate school or, you know, uh, well, they, don't, they don't do it in kindergarten. Everybody, everybody's equal in kindergarten. But when you come out of high school, some of the people have those gold cords. When you go to college, there's three different levels of, grad, of graduation. There's magna cum laude, which is with much, uh, with much applause, literally, with much recognition. There's summa cum laude, and then there is thank the laude. <laughs> I graduated, thank the Lord. <laughs> yeah. But Dewey Bertolini, in his commentary, makes the, he says, you know, everybody's going to graduate. But some people are going to be wearing the cords. Some people are going to get the president's trophy, etc. There's rewards. And that is the nature of this, of this evaluation. The word judgment is used. When we hear the word judgment, it always feels like something is, is you know, there's a sentence being handed down. And that's not the nature of it. It's a judgment like where is the good and what is the bad. It's a judging of those things. And, I, and the idea that we're going to graduate and, and we're going to be recognized... And, and so within that, God refers to rewards as crowns. And, and I'm not going to elaborate on these. That's a subject for another sermon someday. But here are, here's just a list of the crowns that are mentioned uh, in the New Testament. An incorruptible crown for living the disciplined life. The Apostle Paul said, I beat my body daily, lest when I have preached to others I should be a castaway. He says, I'm looking to get that incorruptible crown, a recognition that will not fade away. A crown of rejoicing for successful witnessing. The people who are, who are faithful and effective in sharing the gospel message have a special crown for them. A crown of righteousness for loving Christ's appearing. I think this could be even as simple as the fact that we, we look forward to seeing the Lord and the reward that we're going to get is the wiping away of our sin and the full righteousness of Christ. We will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. A crown of life for enduring trials. That's one of the little pieces of that teaching on trials that we don't always emphasize, but it's important. 
And then one for pastors, and not just full-time servants like myself, but I think anybody who has served as an elder in a church, those who execute that, that job faithfully, there is a special crown for that. Now, there, there's several ways that we could look at some of these crowns in Scripture. It does appear that there is actually something that God is going to give us in perhaps the form of a crown as a reward because that, and it fits the imagery of the time of the Bible. If you were specially recognized, they'd put some kind of a, a crown on your head. For the Olympic Games, it was a crown of laurel wreath, a laurel, a laurel wreath, a laurel, a laurel crown woven together. Certainly a person like a king or somebody had this. But the reason that I think there is something particular and special, tangible that God is going to give us comes from the book of Revelation. And here is a scene from the book of Revelation, a scene of worship. The four living, the four living creatures, each having six wings, these would be some type of angelic creature, were full of eyes around and within. They do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne. We don't know right here who the 24 elders are, but we get a clue when it says they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they exist and were created. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, which is a way to just express so many I couldn't count saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard them saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen! And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped Him who lives forever. The 24 elders are, rep, are, a, are a word that God uses to refer to all of us Christians from this church era. And the reason I know is because it's those who are redeemed, those who are born again from every tribe, nation, and tongue. But did you notice what the elders do? Did you notice what the elders do, what the, what the Christians do? They cast their crowns before the throne saying, You, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. If you, if you bring all of this together, I believe what you understand is this. God says, I'm going to save you. Now I am commanding you as a born-again person, walk with me. Serve me. Live for me. You owe it to me because I own you as a born-again person. But I'm asking you to do this. I'm asking you to build in your life godliness and do godly things. Say no to sinful things. And as we do that, someday in heaven, God will look at our life and say, Good job. 
Here's the stuff that's burned up, but here is the reward. Here is a crown. Or here are multiple crowns for you. And we will come to the heavenly worship service and throw our crowns at His feet and say, I couldn't have done any of this without you. You are worthy of praise. But some folks are going to be empty-handed. They'll be able to praise with their voice. I don't want to be one of those empty-handed folk. I would agree. It's better to get to heaven empty-handed than not to get there at all. I would absolutely agree with that. But the reality is, there's no reason to come empty-handed, is there? The other day I went to the mall for dinner. On my way out, somebody hollered at me, got my attention, and it was somebody who had been in our youth ministry 30 years ago. She was with her husband and introduced her boys, and, and we were commiserating about the, the old days when she was young and I had hair. Sadly, she doesn't look that much different. I do. She said some very complimentary things about our ministry, and it blessed me very much. I was glad to know I had done something of lasting value in her life that made a positive contribution in her life. And it blessed me, and I, I, went, I went walking out of the mall like that. What do you suppose it'll be like when you stand in front of Jesus and he says, good job. You did something that lasts for eternity. Do you suppose you feel good? <laughs> Boy, I can't imagine. I can't imagine the deep sense of accomplishment that will run inside of me when Christ says, good job. I know some of my life is going to be consumed by his fire evaluation. I can't do anything about those days past. But I can do something about the time I've got left. Heavenly Father, help me to see. Help me to see the wood, hay, and stubble that I'm building with. And help me to see where I can build with some more gold, silver, and precious stone. And help all of us to see that. We do want your approval. We want you to know that you did not waste the son of your blood saving us, but that we are servants. Help us to live for you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.